This morning, what we're talking about really is a message that was consistent to Corinth, and it's a message today in exactly the same way. So we've, we've talked a lot over the course of introduction that, that First Corinthians could often be called First Americans. This is one of the best cases to be made for that, for that very theory today. What was is what is. There's nothing new under the sun. And anytime mankind thinks we've come up with some new philosophy or new idea or new thing, chances are it's a rehash, a reiteration, or a modern uh, display of something that's very old. And so nothing is new under the sun. So today we're going to be looking primarily here in 1 Corinthians 1 uh, verses 18 to 31. But this is also going to draw your attention back to 1 Corinthians 2 verses 6 to 16. Now I mentioned that and I'll mention it in this next slide. Because if your life group is following the sermon series for discussion, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16 is going to be uh, the sister text to what you're looking at today. We won't go into it in the message time, but it would really help um, you and your life groups for this part of the discussion. If you do this uh, sermon follow-up as kind of your daily devotional, I know some of you have said that you did that, um, Second Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16 is the, the sister verse to this. It'll help in your studies. So today as we talk about wisdom over philosophy, the foolishness of the cross uh, triumphing over humanist philosophy, what I'll remind you of is that the church in Corinth was just as savvy, just as innovative, just as intellectual, and just as metropolitan as the church in the United States of America. The Western church today and the Western church then, just as savvy. And the people who attended those churches in 2,000 years ago in antiquity, they spoke a different language and they wore a different dress style. Uh, they wore their hair a little bit different and, and, and their culture was slightly different. But at the end of the day, remember, they're just as smart just as human, just as intellectual as you and I are today. And you give them electricity and, and iPhones, and essentially they're going to be just like us. And so if we spoke the same language, we really would be experiencing the same struggles. In order to make what the Scripture's talking about 2,000 years ago relevant and germane today, we want to understand who they were and what they were going through. And then you start to go, oh, it's the same struggle. The message is our message, just like it was theirs. So a pair of themes we're going to explore today. First of all, God's wisdom is far above and far removed from culture's wisdom. Culture. Culture changes, doesn't it? Culture in Assyria, culture in Ethiopia, culture in India, culture in Brazil, culture in Mexico, culture in the United States. There's different cultures, but wisdom transcends cultures. And so the wisdom of the gospel is not bound by or limited by a culture. It transcends all of them. It's above and beyond all of them. And so that's that first point. Secondly, is that Paul is going to conjure and use four sophist-style rhetorical challenges. He's going to draw in parallel, hear me say, juxtapose from Isaiah. This is going to be a stroke of just genius. And it's one of the reasons that when we read the scriptures and we encounter some of the brilliance of Paul and God's apostles, um, we can see why scripture is unique above and beyond all, all human writing. One human being couldn't be as eloquent, brilliant as, as Paul is without the Holy Spirit's influence. So those are the things we'll look at. Our core verse, of course, is going to be 1 Corinthians 1 <clears throat> Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved, or we who are being saved. Now, 
That verse is going to start with, you know what I did, guys? I have the wrong citation in both versions of that slide. Isn't that amazing? Look at that. There's human wisdom and Shannon's ignorance on display. I love it. So that's uh, 118. I apologize. So for, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God to us who are being saved. Now, last week, I'm going to quiz you. When a sentence in scripture opens up with the word for, what does that alert us to? Right. What did you say over here? I'm sorry. Okay. It says, whatever preceded it is what you need to draw back to your mind. Another way of saying it would be this, with that in mind. So if you're reading along and it says now, or therefore, or so, or yet, what you hear is with that in mind. So what has the whole of the introduction of Corinthians really brought us to by the time we get to this correct verse with the, right, with the wrong citation? For the word of, cross, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God does who are being saved. It means the way that you were gifted and enriched, okay? It means that the way that God is faithful and you were called, It means that unity and harmony defining you as the people of Jesus Christ, united behind a singular gospel of Jesus himself. With all of that in mind, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those of you who are being saved. Okay, That's the thesis of what Paul is really going to get into. Keep in mind who you are, how you've been gifted, and what you're called to do. Because you are called according to something that the world is going to find foolish that God says is wise. So the first message, uh, the first part of the message really is in this one. God's wisdom is far and above, far removed from culture's wisdom. In the United States and Western culture today, it seems that Christianity is perpetually coming under assault. It seems that it's common to call Christians a culture of hate. They're, they hate this, they hate these, they hate these. <clears throat> it's common to pick out the flaws or the failures in Christianity and say, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites, which, which we are, so thanks for the ID. But it's this whole idea of the fact that, that people want to trash on, dish on, minimalize Christianity, and it's becoming more and more and more the norm. Calling Christians foolish for our beliefs, antiquated, out of date, out of touch, tone deaf with culture and society, to which all of us are going, yes, you're right. Our culture, our society, our truth transcends contemporary culture, but it does it in a way that's wise in God's eyes, although you may find it foolish. And this is not a new thing. Historically, Christianity has been on the outside, by the way, biblical, authentic Christianity has been on the outside of cultural norms and cultural beliefs and cultural tolerances, right? So all the way back in the early church, we think that somehow people have been led to believe that in the early days of Christianity, everybody liked Christians, it was all good, like the second chapter of Acts, and and all was fantastic. But the reality is Christians were being martyred. They were being oppressed, they were being suppressed, they were being marginalized for hundreds of years before we get to Nicaea and a time of peace in the Roman Empire. Around 224, uh, prior to the year 224, um, there was a piece of graffiti that was written on a wall. Now, how many of you know what a caricature is? How about a meme? Yeah, you experienced these before? Okay, don't you just love memes? Aren't they great? 
They're incredibly obnoxious because you can take a picture and give it all kinds of meaning, put all kinds of stuff on it and make it say whatever you want. People go, oh, you're so clever. No, you're not. You just put words on a page. And so caricature is often used to mock, to belittle, to make fun of, to marginalize, to bully um, people. It's always been that way. Well, in the ancient world, as you might have realized, um, when Chuck Conger was a kid, they did not have the ability to use you know cell phones and technology. And so what they would do is they would take chisels and they would carve it in the wall. Remember this, Chuck? Chuck was a kid. Ding, 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 ding. It was a bummer in school because imagine cleaning up after class with all the rock shards. And so they would, they would do it. The other thing they would do is they would scratch it into walls uh, where maybe new limestone had been treated or something like that. And so they'd carve it. The good thing about it is that those survive the test of time. 2,000 years from today, it's not likely that somebody's going to look at your cat meme and it's going to survive. However, these things that were written back then did. Now, I want you to look at one that's going to help you understand this. Christianity has always been foolish to those who are perishing. It looks like this. Now, I'll show you the cleaned up version in a second. This ancient caricature was written sometime before 225. Um, and it is a picture of, of, of a character mocking the message of the gospel and the atonement of Jesus. Let me break it down for you because this really is pretty interesting. Um, what you have <clears throat> is a person being crucified with the head of a donkey. And he's being worshipped by a Greek worshipper. And the inscription, if you're the Greco-Latin scholar in the room, it says, Aleximenios celebrates his deity. In other words, Aleximenios, who's, who's a Greco-Roman, is being mocked as he worships a crucified deity. Now, the crucified deity has the head of a donkey and the body of a man, and he's on a late, um, a late Roman cross. Now, let me explain that late Roman cross, because I did have some questions about this earlier. The cross that you and I are used to seeing is just the, the, the upright and the cross beam, right? It's just the T version of the cross. Um, that is a very early Phoenician and Roman style of cross that would have existed up till about 30 to 33 AD. After that, the Romans started putting a bottom bar on the cross, and they would actually stand the person on it and nail their feet to that, that bar, and then they would tie their arms um, j- just, just beyond or, or, or in front of the elbow and then put a nail through their hand so they couldn't wiggle. But, but what happened was you couldn't let off of your arms too long or stand up too much without it being painful, but because of the bottom bar, people would live longer. So it would be completely typical for somebody to be on that cross for as much as four days. That is heinous. Now, here's why that matters. If you look at the picture, you see what kind of cross he's on. If you look at the picture, you see the head of the donkey on the deity that Aleximenios is is celebrating or worshiping. Okay, picture it. But there's another couple of things that are happening. First of all, he's being mocked for the fact that he's worshiping a crucified deity. They're mocking the deity by putting a donkey's head on it. Because in the ancient world, the, the jackass or the donkey or the ass, however you want to refer to it, was seen as a stupid animal, a truly foolish animal. Anybody that would worship that would truly be ridiculous, right? So it's a mockery. So they're mocking Aleximenios and they're, lo- they're mocking the God that he serves. But it's even more interesting when you start to unpack the whole of the picture. Now, how many of you took Latin? Anybody else have to go through this pain? I'm so glad to see other people did it. In high school, this was like required. I think I snuck out with a D. Uh, it might be the best grade possible out of that. It was, it was just pain. Okay. There's no why in Latin. You see the why up above? Now, why would a Roman write a why there? This is the first clue that there's more going on. How about the Ix at the bottom? 
Normally it would mean nine, but is that how the Romans wrote their nine? See, they would have put the bars over the top and the bottom of it if they wrote it like that, unless they were using it in, in, in phonetic instead of numeric caricature. And so when you start to look at this picture, you're going to see just how deep the mockery goes. The Romans saw anybody who did not speak Latin, or even to some extent Greek, as barbarians, right? You've heard the term? They called them barbars. Why? Is there a phonetic in Latin that goes bar? Well, No. It's a mockery of people who don't speak Roman, because to the Romans, anybody who didn't speak Latin sounded like bor, 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 bor. And so that's how they would mock them, okay? There's more to come, Kayla, you just wait. And so the Y is a letter that the Latin, the latter Latin speakers would use, Romans in particular, to mock sounds that were not phonetically used in Roman Latin. And there were a couple of those sounds that matter. Uh, you would already know them. If you went to Scotland today and you went to a lake, like a, a ness, okay, what would your Scottish friends refer to that as? Would they say, oh, it's a lake? What would they say? Okay, but would they go lock? Yeehaw, I'm going to stick my key in my lock. Is that how they would say it? No, they would say it's a loch. And they would say loch because it comes out of the throat. And this is a, a sound that would exist in their Celtic Germanic languages that doesn't exist in our Romanic language. We wouldn't use the och. If you were speaking French, there would be some elements of sound that would exist in French that don't uh, necessarily take place in English. And I'm not talking about the condescension. I'm talking about these sounds that would happen in French. So uh, if you were to to um, and I don't speak French, so there was a, there was one on my notes, and I left my notes over there. So there's a French sound, and I forgot it. And so if you were to go uh, into the Semitic languages, and you were to say the name of God in phonetic Hebrew, Y E H W H, the way you might say it, it would sound like Yahweh. So oh, Yahweh. Okay, and so there's these sounds that don't exist in Latin, and the way they would represent them is by writing a Y, and it's a mockery. In other words, ugh, 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 you know, bar, bar, ugh, ugh, it's their way of mocking you. And so if you're looking at their mocking of a Semitic Jewish deity who's a donkey and stupid, they would go, ugh, 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 and they're mocking that. that. So what we have is Alexa Minios worshiping his God. And how's his God sound? Ugh, 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 bar, bar. They're making fun of the God. But that's not all, because the nine at the bottom that you're looking at, how do you say nine in Latin? Nin. You'd say nin. If you're, if you're saying it in Latin, I don't pronounce it properly, but who knows, because it's a dead language, right? And so and that's why I shouldn't have to take it in high school, right? But so anyway, there's this, this nine. They would say nin, nin. And so the way they would mock people, and we know this in Roman Latin, was they would go nin, 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 nin. And they would use words like that to mock people. So if you were chasing somebody down the street, giving them a hard time, you'd be like, nye, 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 nye. and this is a sound they would make to mock. Kind of cool, right? Look at the stuff you learn in church, right? And so what's going on in this picture is there's a mocking of the deity. There's a mocking of Aleximenios. There's a calling of Christianity as foolishness. Did I get the foolishness across? Okay. See, I'm good at some things. Foolishness, Phil. I got that one nailed. I, I can do that. So, <laughs> uh, you can leave. No, 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 the, the, in, <laughs> in the first century, Christianity was mocked. People made fun of, but they also hated Christians. They sent them to their deaths in the arena. They destroyed their businesses. They separated their family. They threw them into slavery. They were unfair to them in the courts. This is how Christians were treated in the early in the early church. 
and the world still sees the message of the gospel as foolish. Instead of walking around with making sounds, now the world makes fun of what we believe and what we hold to be true. That a Savior would come, become human like us, give his life so that we could be atoned and have peace with God. What a foolish message to scientific, savvy culture. But it's the message of salvation to those of us who are being saved. That message is the message of the gospel. It says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, and that all who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And if you can confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and God is raised from the dead, that you can be saved. That simple message of the gospel is that you can be at peace with God. If you can believe and follow him and surrender to him your heart, your life, and your soul, that your eternity is with the Lord and your contemporary life is full of the meaning and the purpose that comes from having a meaning and a purpose that transcends your culture, which is coming and going and ebbing and flowing and fading as it goes. You see, that's the gospel. It's just that simple. And so the message of the gospel is foolishness to their culture, just like it often is to ours. The second part of the message today that really talks about Paul's brilliant um, comparison from Isaiah to the sophist culture in which the Corinthian church found itself. Now, um, for those of you who might be saying, what are you talking about? In the book of Isaiah... Um, is incredible wisdom, both poetic and literary. Um, the way that it was written, there's this thing called Hebraic parallelism, which is invented by Deborah, by the way, one of the judges. The earliest Hebrew poetry follows this thing called parallelism. And they'll do these, these uh, what I refer to as triads as well. They'll ask three questions, or they'll do three things in a series, or one, two, and three. And you'll see this form all through Isaiah. And whenever you see it, even in English, you realize, oop, he's doing doing something literary there. They also do it in sevens and in twelves throughout Scripture. And so if you see things in series, you should go, oh wait, there's a series. I wonder what that series means. Write them down, kind of follow them. And so in this one right here, we're going to see Paul is drawing from Isaiah to draw the minds of the Corinthian Jews and Christians to a point. And what it's going to be is this. He's going to juxtapose. That means I'm going to take two things and mash them together and ask you to figure out what they have to do with each other. That's kind of a layman's definition of juxtaposition. We cool with that? I'm not trying to be scholarly. I'm just trying to get you to think like Paul wants you to think as a Corinthian for a minute because you can do this, all right? All right, Phil, you can do this. You got it? All right, Gracie, if he's having a problem, you walk him through it. So here's what we have. In Isaiah 33, 18, proper reference, by the way, it's going to read like this. If you have your Bibles, roll over to Isaiah 33, 18. It says, your mind will meditate on the past terror. Where is the accountant? Where is the tribute collector? And where is the one who spied out our defenses? Let me read it one more time. Listen, where is the accountant? Where is the tribute collector? And where is the one who spied out our defenses. Now, what did Paul just ask in Corinthians? He says, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? And where is the debater of this age? Did you hear it? What Paul's doing is he's asking a question in a three, which would be directly paralleling in the minds of the people who are hearing it, the writing of Isaiah and the way Isaiah asked questions. And he's going to say, you're going to dwell on on the terrors of the past. But he doesn't have to say that to them. 
Because when they hear the question asked the way Paul does it, their minds are instantly drawn to Isaiah, which they knew by heart. Now, for us Americans, this seems like a really difficult connection. Like I don't see it. It's not written in the Scripture, so I'm not, I'm not sure what you're saying. For our culture, it sounds foreign. But to them, this was an, a direct immediate connection between Isaiah and himself. And the reason we know that is in the verse before it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Hmm. So Paul's already saying, I'm going to use Old Testament references for New Testament teaching. I'm going to use the wisdom of God in the ancient age to relate to the wisdom of God in this age because God is the same and never changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We're going to see this very same reference used in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Colossians, by the way, and in Ephesians. So Paul's going to do this from time to time to remind us of the wisdom of the Old Testament, how it applies today. So for just a rabbit trail for a second, I would encourage you to remember, Surgeon Bay Community Church, that all Christian, all Scripture is Christian Scripture. Genesis is Christian Scripture. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, they are Christian scripture. And the Bible does not start in Matthew. If you have a New Testament at home, that's keen bean. You have half the Bible. My encouragement to you would be read and understand the whole of the Bible because all of it speaks to Jesus and the bringing of, of the fulfillment of the law in God's Son and the beginning of, of being able to live under the grace of the atonement of Jesus. It's testified about all the way through Scripture that the first Adam, then the second Adam, and in Jesus. So always remember that the whole of Scripture is Christian Scripture. Can we agree to that? Okay, off the rabbit trail, back to this. Let's watch Paul do this. Number one question he's going to ask is, where is the one who is wise? And he's going to compare that with, where is the scribe? Where is the accountant? So here's what the, the people in Corinth who were good Jewish people in these synagogues and churches were hearing. They were hearing a parallel to the scribe. Now, how many of you have heard of Azurbanipal II? Okay. You went to school, right? You took history at some point. Azurbanipal and Tiglath-Pileser and Sennacherib were these incredible Assyrian rulers. One of the richest cultures the world had ever seen became, of course, Persia. Uh, but, but the Assyrians, as much as they were brutal, uh, they were a brilliant and a vibrant culture. One of the most fearsome militaries the world has ever seen. But the Assyrian ruler, Ashurbanipal II, is the one who conquered Israel. And when he did so, um, they took great records of everything they did. And they would put them into relief carvings all over their buildings. So if you were to go to the ancient Near East and find some of these that ISIS hasn't blown up, you would find some of these beautiful reliefs. And one of them is very telling. It's got a picture of Ashurbanipal II killing a what? A lion. And in the other one, you see the statue. What's he holding? What was the symbol of Israel? The lion. The pomegranate and the lion were those two symbols that Israel would have used. Not the Star of David, by the way, that's today. But in the ancient world, the symbol of the lion and the symbol of the pomegranate were Israel. And so what Azurbanipal II has seen in this, this relief doing is he's taken it by the throat and he's rammed a sword through the lion. In other words, I have conquered you. I have dominated you. And this is here to remind you all the time of how great I, Ashurbanipal, am as your conqueror. That's the one. In the other picture, though, what the scribe is, is doing, what, what, what Ashurbanipal is doing, he's holding the baby lion. Look how little and insignificant the lion is. It's holding on to him, and he can't really do anything other than hug him and embrace him. He can't affect him. And Ashurbanipal's got him right here like a pet. And what's he got in his hand? 
What he has in his hand is the written record of the conquest of Judah. That's what that statue is. Wow. And so what's the scribe? The scribe is the one who said, here's how we conquered you. Here's how I wiped you out. Here's how we mistreated your captives. Here's how we brutalized you as a people. Here's all the stuff we took from you. Here's the names of all the people that are now slaves in my castle. This is what the scribe did. He took the records. And to the people who wanted to live behind, he would come and and these scribes would remind them of who they are and whose rule they're under. Constantly reminding, constantly beating them down with it. And what is Paul comparing them to? He's comparing them to the sophists, the wisdom of the age, those who seem so wise as they stand and preach and teach. And by the way, the sophists would, would stand behind things they called pulpits, Uh, Not an American word, it's an ancient word. They would stand behind these lecterns or pulpits and they would wear vestments, which were their outfits that showed that they were the speaker. Um, And they would speak and they would impress people with their arguments. And the people would go, oh, they're so wise, they're so wise. And each an individual, each and every one of the scribes or kind of these, uh, these sophist speakers would kind of have their shtick that they would do. And after you kind of got familiar with them, you kind of know their shtick when they show up. You know, if you're going to go see Tim Hawkins here in, in a few weeks or whatever, you kind of have an idea what Tim's shtick is, right? He's got, you got the jokes. You love to hear him like, oh, I love it when he tells the one about Chick-fil-A. Da, 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 da. You know, and you laugh about that. Or he tells a story about his kid this way. Oh, you start to laugh and, and you kind of know his shtick. Same thing with the sophists. They got their thing. And people would take notes. You know, they would, they would write on the parchment or whatever. Ting, 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 ting. They would they'd take the notes right there, and they would remember later on what that sophist had to say. But here's what the sophist did. The sophist asked questions. They asked questions. And they would say, uh, well, you say you're free, but what is freedom really? Oh. And then they would elaborate on why you're not really free. Or they would say, um, you know, I am, I am this. Oh, are you really? Well, what does it mean to be that? Oh, I don't, I don't know. And so the, the sophists would have their questions. They didn't answer. They asked questions. And they questioned truth. And they, and they questioned understood knowledge. And this was kind of their shtick for a lot of them. And so what Paul is saying is, your scribes who remind you of the ways in which you've been dominated or destroyed in the ancient world, that terror, are just like your so-called wise sophists today. They constantly make you question what is true and what makes you happy and what is real and what matters and what has value in life. All they're doing is keeping you under the same kind of oppression that the ancients did. Then Paul goes on to say, where is the teacher of the law? which he parallels to, where's the tribute collector? Now, how many of you pay taxes? Okay, go ahead, everybody get your hands up. How many of you just love it? Isn't that the best? No, nobody's hands up. Okay, so none of us love paying taxes. We love what the taxes render back to us. We love good roads and good schools and, and, and wonderful politicians who are always honest and tell the truth. And, and we love how you know, our society is free and our society is protected and we have all the protections of, of police officers and sheriff's department and the EMS and rescue. We like all that. We like that the lights work and that the roads are salted and that's what our taxes go to. So, okay, we like that. But imagine you lived in a culture where your taxes, you got no benefit from. It was just taken from you. Because if you want to live, you'll pay for it and you get nothing in return, but we mistreat you. See, that's what tribute looked like in the ancient world. Where is the tribute collector? Well, in the Assyrian relief, it looks a lot like this. It's the one on the, on the right over there. Focus on that. Don't look at the other picture yet. 
that you're all looking at. So in, in, the, first, in, the, in the one on the far right, what you have is, is a tax collector who looks a lot like Elijah Bonapal, funny, with his square and braided beard and everything like that. So what's happening is the tax collector comes in the form and the name and the shape and the memory of Elijah Bonapal with his tax collection bag, and he says, pay up. Kind of like we do in service when we take the offering, you know, you should feel pay up right now or you're not getting out of here. But what, what the tax collector was doing, the tribute collector, he was saying, because you've been conquered, because we dominated you, because our king and our soldiers are better than yours, and you can't do anything about it, half of everything you make, everything you have, you have to give to us. And they come in the name of Ezra Bonapal, and they take from you half every year. And if you're a good Jew, you're paying another 23.5% in, in your tithing to the temple and to the, to, the, to the Jewish law. And so you're going home with something like 27% of your income is all you get to live on. So no matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, you're never going to get ahead. Because as hard as you work, you're paying more to others than you get for yourself. This was, their, this was what it was like to live under the tribute system. And Paul now is going to equate it to the law. Where's the teacher of the law? Your wisdom, your law. In their day, just like today, in some cases, I'm not trying to be anti-Semitic or rip on our Jewish friends, but what's, what they're saying was that the Jewish law was taught with such, such authority, such a heavy hand, is that every law had four or five more laws that surrounded it. It just made you feel more and more and more repressed and less and less and less free and less and less and less feeling like you love your God and you're enjoying being a part of God's family and more like God is some celestial killjoy ogre who has rule after rule after law after law after law that's just beating you down and pounding you down like those tax collectors, tribute collectors who take everything and you got nothing left for yourself. That's what Paul's illusion is. Are you getting it? Are you hearing it? So here's the first one again. Who is the one who's wise? And who is the scribe? Who is the accountant? Where's the teacher of the law? Just like where's the tribute collector? And now he's going to nail it. He goes, where's the philosopher of this age? Where's the one who spied out your defenses? Who identified your weaknesses? Have you ever been betrayed? Never ever had a friend turn on you? Ever have somebody that you had an agreement with wrong you, turn around and do other than what they agreed and leave you hanging? Have you ever been accused of something you simply did not do, but you got set up for it? You see, that's what betrayers do. The Benedict Arnold, the one who understands the army and then turns and fights for the other side against you. It's those of you who are NFL fans who have a great receiver who gets picked up by another team and then tells the defensive coach all the plays that the team you came from, right? Steelers fans, you feeling me right now? And so, but, but here's what happens. When you've been betrayed, you understand what it is to be laid bare. All of your weaknesses are known. How humiliating, how, how dehumanizing is that? So you see, when Paul says, who is the philosopher of this age? Where are they? He's drawing their attention right back to, to these sophists, these philosophers. What they're doing is, is they're speaking to you. They're teaching you. Uh, they're giving you all what they refer to as wisdom. But all along, what it's doing is it's making you weaker. It's spying out the areas where you are weak, where you are failures, and making you vulnerable to those who would like to see you destroyed. These philosophies that you think are so wise... They're just weakening you. And they're taking you further and further and further and further away from that which is true and that which is strong. That which, when it comes under waves and wind, will stand strong on the rock. You're building your houses on sand. 
And Paul is directly equating that to the people who spied out the Israelites and made it possible for for the Assyrian army to come and destroy them. The human wisdom, the foolishness of it, is exposed in ways um, really that segregate people. This is where Paul is taking a lot of this. He's saying all this stuff that's supposed to make you wise, you think you're so smart because of it, it's segregating and it's separating and it's damaging and it's weakening you. And as a church, what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth, you're saying, I follow Apollos and I follow Paul and I follow Crispus and I follow Ephesus. Stop it. You are the people of Jesus Christ. You are Christians. You are the body of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. You are one in Christ. And when you allow these things to come in and separate you and alienate you, when you allow human wisdom and philosophies of your age to come in and separate you and alienate you from one another, you are doing no favors to the body of Christ. You are weakening your defenses. You are weakening your capabilities. Brothers and sisters, we are called to see all of our brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters, as a oneness, to love one another and to use our calling and our giftedness to further the kingdom of heaven. That's what our calling is. But instead, what we've done is we've allowed the wisdom of this age, the science of this age, to prove itself false and to interrupt the great influence of the gospel. When Paul speaks about the knowledge of God and the salvation it grants, he refers to life transformation that should characterize the church of Jesus Christ. So what's the message for the church today? What was is what is. There's nothing new under the sun. So what do we glean from this, what we've read today and what we've come to understand today about Paul writing to the Corinthian church and to to conjure these questions and these challenges to them? By the way, did you recognize he did it Sophic style? He answered, he asked them three questions that they had to ponder and think about. But rather than being dead-ended questions, they were questions that would draw them right back to the importance of four. In other words, you were called, you were enriched, you were gifted, harmony is key, unity among you is the four. So the question should point us back to those messages each time. What a, what a brilliant writer Paul was. But what does that do for today? I'd propose two ways we as the American church could engage this. The wisdom of our contemporary philosophies must always be subjected to godly wisdom. Test current social ideologies against the timeless gospel and the wisdom of the Lord in Scripture. We make it even simpler. When society says it, when culture says it, when America says it, when we hear it in postmodern philosophy, compare that to Scripture. If it doesn't pass through Scripture and come out the other side whole, you reject it. You got it? That means all social ideologies. If they're not consistent with Scripture, they're out because they're not true for God's people. You got that? The second part would be, rather than seeking proof in order to validate your submission to the gospel, immerse yourselves into the word and let it engage you. As you do, you will become increasingly aware of the fact that God is far beyond needing to perpetually prove himself to human beings. Rather than constantly question God and look for other philosophies to bring you wholeness, spend your time in the word understanding the word, feasting on the word, being filled with the word, fully understanding it, because in doing that, you're going to find happiness and fulfillment and meaning. And then you apply this meaning to what you experience in your culture to find what real truth is. He was asking him to do it in Corinth, and he's asking you to do it today.